This morning, we are starting our, a new series just for, for Christmas, Advent, and December. And it's called um, The Grand Miracle, which is actually taken from C.S. Lewis, a quote he, he described. And it's about the, the grand miracle that God became one of us, that God, that Jesus was born, the Son of God was come into the world. And what I want to do through the series is connect God's salvation project, his, his great plan of salvation, to what took place in the birth of Christ. How does that fit into what God is doing and has done in our midst? I want to start, though, by talking about smorgasbords. Now, I don't know if you know what that word means. I found out that not everyone does. It, a smorgasbord is a Swedish name for a, a meal, usually meats and fish, set it out um, on a buffet. And basically, we call it buffets. It's like a, an all-you-can-eat, you get to pick and choose your meal. Um, and I remember as a kid, there was one place in town that had a smorgasbord. And I think we went there once as a family. Like, I was so excited about this idea. And, and I don't see them as much around here, but I know that, that endless buffets have become super popular, um, especially if you go for Chinese food or other ethnic foods. Oftentimes, they'll serve it as a buffet, or you'll have a, um, the Golden Corrals, I know the big one I, I've, I've seen in other places, that it's just, just about a buffet where you can get everything you want. And now there's, these type of restaurants are all over the place. Because you know what, Americans, we want our choices, right? We want, we want lots of food, and we want to pick and choose what we want. We want options. Um, we hate having our choices limited. And that's what I, I love about these buffets is I like to pick and choose just a little bit, especially if I'm trying, like, foreign food and ethnic foods that I want to taste a little bit, not sure if I want to commit to one particular thing. But that fits our, our mentality. Now, I, I, I know some of these have probably closed during COVID. They no longer use those buffets. I hope, I hope they come back because I love them. Um, what I want to talk about, though, with smorgasbords is do we treat religion, our faith, in the same way? We often, as Americans, we want that, right? We want to be able to pick and choose the things we believe in, the things we like from different sources. And we want to pull it together to make a meal that's perfect for us. We want to have our options open. The, the main point I want to bring across through the series is that God has been engaged in a great salvation project, plan. But his salvation would come through one particular path, through one way that, that we don't get to pick out of many options for how salvation would come, that God engineered it. And he engineered it, what I'm going to focus on this morning, is he engineered it through one particular people, the Jews or the people of Israel that through them he would bring the Messiah who would bring salvation to all peoples. Our main passage in Acts 17, we want to start with, is Paul is bringing the message all around from city to city, and he ends up in Athens. 
the great city of the philosophers, and um, and it's a place where they they are investigating. They love to talk about new ideas. And in the Greek and Roman world of that time, there were they they had their old religions, what we learn of as like Greek mythology, right, with Zeus and all those gods. Athena, obviously, Athens was established by Athena or the, the city of Athena. Um, but then there's also the philosophers were exploring new ideas. It mentions in our passage Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Actually, it's before our passage that it was um, these different kinds of philosophers. But they were also looking into religions from the East. Uh, very popular in the first century was what's known as the, the Isis cult or the Isis religion. and It came out of Egypt. And so it had a little more of an Eastern flair to it. And so that was really popular. There's also these, these mystery religions that were, were moving their way into the Roman Empire at that time, and people were checking them out. And so when Paul had come with this new teaching, the, the philosophers of his time said, yeah, we, we would love to hear what you have to say. So they invited him to speak up at what's called the Areopagus, which it Ares is the Greek version. Mars is the Roman version of the god of war. So there was a temple to Mars up on this little hill pictured here in the, the, the screen. So that's where they would have their meetings. And so Paul had a chance to speak. And think about it. It's, he's speaking at the location of a temple to the god Ares or Mars. And so he's, he's in the midst of this pantheistic viewpoint. What will Paul say, and how does he do it? And he starts by talking about how, in a sense, it's a good thing. You know, men of Athens, you are very religious in your outlook. You're, in every way, very religious, meaning you are seeking to understand the way things are and the way things work. You're seeking to understand how the, the divine things happen and take place. In fact, I've even found a, uh, Paul says, I've even found a, a temple to an unknown God, right? You're so worried about missing out on some truth that's out there because you want to seek and understand. Note how he approaches them in, in a sense, not as blasting them for worshiping false gods, but highlighting the fact that they want the truth. They want to seek and understand, and they're open to it. And so let me tell you, Paul says, about that unknown God. Let me tell you the thing you're missing, the thing you, you don't have yet, yet, yet to grasp. And so Paul then begins to outline the God, the God of Israel, who's known through Jesus. And he talks about this is the God who made the world and everything in it. That God is not a part of creation. That God stands outside of, he's transcendent. Above, because he actually made everything. This is different than the great myths of the Greek world. In those myths, you know, there, there were, like, the creation comes about when uh, different gods sort of interact in some way. That the, they're already part of creation. The god of Zeus is, is, and, uh, and Neptune, these are gods of the things like the oceans and the sky. So they're not separate from the creation. But God, Paul is saying, the God, the one you don't know yet, is separate. He made the world 
and he's different. And this God is not found in man-made temples. You're not going to find him by going into your little temple where you have a statue of a God. That's not where he lives. Um, God has to be found elsewhere. And so it says the good news is God wants all men to seek him. You're doing good by trying to seek and understand God. God made it his, his desire. In fact, he's worked in history um, and worked through the other nations of all mankind because he wants all men to possibly feel their way toward him and find him. God wants to be found. Or he is accessible. It says, he says, God's not far from you. Right? He is accessible. And there's something in us, in all people, that seeks God. We know that this world is not enough. There, there's a verse that says he set eternity in our hearts. That we need to find meaning and understand what it's about, even when we don't know. I, I did this bike tour this summer. Have I mentioned that yet? And on it, um, I got in a conversation with a, a young engineer, Amanda, and we, we were riding together for a little while and found out that she was in the nuclear field. And I, I, it gave me a chance to ask her about things I, I was curious about and, like, the state of things and whether they're building new nuclear reactors. And, um, and in that conversation, I mentioned I, I actually was a physics major. I thought at one point I would go into that field. Um, but word had also gotten around that I was a pastor. And so she was a bit taken aback. I'm like, well, wait, wait, I, I know you're a pastor. How could you, you majored in physics? Like, how do you, and she asked me, how do you reconcile your belief in God with science? And she was not particularly religious. She, she had grown up with a Jewish background, but she was more in the, the, the physical world. And, and we had a great conversation as we, we rode for a little while. And then we, you know, you, as you do on those rides, you, you get separated, but but for that little time we talked, I tried to talk about how God had shown in the world he made, he gave us clues that he's there, that we might find him. God wants to be found. He made the world in such a way. And I talked a little bit about how there's no way life could have self-assembled. And, and science itself declares life could not self-assemble. The first cell just was not going to pop up unless something brought it into being. There's an intelligent design behind life. And that, that was sort of the line of conversation I took for the little while we had to talk. But I, I still believe God made creation in such a way that, that it, if we look into it, it'll give us that first clue. But it's not enough. Creation itself won't lead us to the truth about God. We need revelation. And so as Paul talks, he says, People have been trying to find their way towards God, but God had to take the initiative. And so we get to where it says Jesus, um, he, God had one man um, by which he has appointed, and it's through that man that God would show what he's like, that what he's like, and that man would be raised from the dead. In other words, Paul's starting to lead them to the message of Jesus. And he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, now that Jesus has come, God has, has commands everywhere. He wants all people to, to come, to, to repent. In other words, to change their thinking, 
and start to see what he's really like. And he's going to do it through this one man who has been raised from the dead. How would we know that the divine creator was reaching into our world so that we could know him? Well, raising someone from the dead would be a pretty good proof. And that's the message Paul brings to, to, the, to the, the Greeks. The challenge these philosophers would have is that, well, you're saying, you know, this one man, this, this, this thing you're talking about would have happened to this people, you know, way over there. These, you know, why wouldn't God have come to us Greeks? You know, we're the, the philosophy people, right? Instead, they would have to believe that God has been working through this minor people in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. That the, the one who, the man who had been raised from the dead would come to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And so they, they weren't sure what to make of what Paul said. And I want to consider God's long-term salvation project. You see, it started in, when we read the Bible in Genesis 1, that we were made to know God. We were made in God's image that we might know and be known by God. That was God's intent for all of us, that we'd be in this, this connected relationship. But if you see the progression, because our, our, the, our ancestors chose to turn a different way, by Genesis 11, all mankind had lost the knowledge of God, that no one knew what God was like. And instead, they had begun to worship and only worshiped the, the false gods, the, the deities, the, you know, each people making up their own gods. And so they worshiped God as things that they created, idols of stone or precious metals. And so if God would have just shown up in Genesis 11, people would not have been understood what, it, what he was or who he was. In order to, to have people understand what it's in order to come to us, God would have to begin a long-term project of preparing the way. And he would do that by interacting with one particular people. He couldn't do it to mankind as a whole. So he picked one nation out of earth. In fact, he started with just one man, Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Together, they, through them, he would build a nation of people. And he would claim them as his chosen people. And to them, he would teach his ways. To them, he would try to help understand the, the things that they would in, need to understand before he could actually come into our midst. And so in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and give you many descendants, despite the fact that he and his wife were already old and beyond childbearing years and had never had children. He says, it's going to happen. I'm going to make you... Um, You'll into a nation, and I will bless your descendants. They will be my people. And then here's the key line. And through them, I will bless all peoples. That he would start with one people so that he could bless all peoples. And so the descendants of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would grow in numbers in, and become part of the 12 tribes of Israel. Ultimately, they would end up in Egypt, and they would be under the thumb of the Pharaoh, basically as slaves in Egypt. 
And the key moment would be when God redeems them. God saves them out of slavery in Egypt. You might know the story of Moses and and the Ten Commandments. If, If you haven't watched it, it's always worth watching again. Right? That God would take his people out of slavery in Egypt and he would claim them as his own and give them the land that they could work for themselves. And in in doing that, God would use these great acts of power to save his people. And in Exodus 20, he says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. They were to exclusively worship the one God. They would be unlike all the other peoples of the world. They would have one God. And eventually, he would teach them that he was the only God. But that's where he started. And he made this declaration at the same time. It's called, he would, he would make them a kingdom of priests. He says, you will be my people. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, I'll make a covenant agreement with you. You shall be my treasured possession, possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean, a kingdom of priests? Well, what does a priest do? In a very general sense, a priest of a religion, if you want to get connected to God, you would go to the priest and he would help connect you back to God, whatever you're supposed to do. He would be someone with knowledge of God um, that would help you get connected if you weren't sure what to do. And he's saying he would make the people of Israel, the entire people, like priest to the other nations, one by which all the nations could ultimately get reconnected to God because they had lost all knowledge of God. And so they failed. I mean, they failed right away. They failed badly. While Moses is still getting these instructions from God, they end up worshiping a golden calf instead of worshiping God. And and. And God would forgive them, and God would begin this long-term project. He'd continue to speak to them. He would correct them and teach them through his servants and the prophets. He would teach them to trust them. When they faced enemies, he would send leaders who would help save them out of their, their situation, leaders like Gideon or Samson. And he was teaching them to learn to trust in him for life. He also then sent their, their greatest leader, King David. And King David was to show them what justice and, and righteousness looked like. David was to lead the people in true justice as king. And he failed. He failed badly. He who was the king and gave in to his own corrupt heart. And, and instead of justice, he, he did rape and murder. And so, once again, God forgave, and he pointed a plan forward. And this is where the prophets begin to speak of a son of David, a descendant of David, one who would be like David, but only able to do it, who would bring justice, a Messiah. And so God began sending his prophets who would call people back to God. The prophets would work very hard to to remind people, to convince people to not worship those other gods. So, for example, you have the prophet Elijah. 
Um, he would battle with the prophets of Baal from the Canaanite gods and try to hold people, stay, no, you stay faithful to the one God, the Lord. But again, they failed. The people kept turning back to other gods. But in the failure, the Lord brought about a remnant, a smaller group who would hold true. And the work of Elijah and the other prophets as they taught. And they kept reaffirming, a Messiah is coming. And so we get to Isaiah, who said, there's a people living in darkness. One day we'll see a great light. And the verse that we, we did earlier, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be a child born who can claim all these titles. What kind of title, what kind of child could do that? And then it goes on to say, of the increase of his government and and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. He'd have the throne of David. This would be the son of David, the Messiah that they were waiting for. He would bring about the plans of God that no one else could do. What's interesting is what finally got them ready for the Messiah. It wasn't some great leader. It wasn't some great prophet. It was defeat. It was being conquered by the Babylonians. It was seeing their city destroyed and many of their number killed. It was seeing the temple torn down and plundered of all of the valuable items. But in Babylon, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, would learn something. They would learn that they could still rely upon God. You see, they, in Babylon, they had no temple. They had no king. They had no power. And somehow, they held together. And in the midst of it, they became the people of the book. See, the only thing they had left was the, the writings, the history of what had happened to them in the past. And so they began to study and read and memorize and teach and think about. And slowly, as they, as they became people of the book, they saw it, what, what they couldn't see before, there really is only one God, and he's in charge of everything. They, they came to understand the one thing God absolutely needed them to understand, that there was but one God, and they are his people. Only then would they be ready for the Messiah. And then after a long wait, God would send the one. Jesus would be born in their midst. Jesus could only have come The Son of God could only be born amidst the Jewish people. The Jewish people were the only ones on earth who believed that there was but one God. Among any other people, the idea of God becoming a man would would not mean that much because Zeus would have his own children and all the pagan gods. But for among the Jews, the idea of God becoming a man was almost unthinkable. And yet that was part of the plan. The one people who, who... who understood that there was just one God and he is transcendent, those are the people to whom the Messiah came. And through those centuries of struggles and being conquered, God had dispersed that people. 
into all the major cities of the Eastern, Near Eastern world and the Mediterranean world so that there were communities of Jewish people who would continue to gather and study the book and affirm the, the, the one God that created everything so that when Christianity burst upon the scene, it was all set up. God's project was ready to, to bear fruit. I want to finish with four truths about this grand miracle, the great project of salvation. First, God would bring salvation for all peoples through his one chosen people, the Jews. Jesus um, was talking to a Samaritan woman. And so she's of a different nation. And she says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. It would, it would come through the Jewish people, through the Jewish Messiah. That's how God would bring salvation for all peoples. Second truth. Salvation is to know God and become part of his people. Think about what salvation really means. It's not just about life after death. We, we, we talk about that and we think about that. Um, but it, it's actually... Salvation is ultimately knowing God. It's being restored to that original purpose. We were made to know God and be known by him. In John 17, it says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So you're made to know God, and and we know God as being part of his people. Um, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings the world has or people outside the church have is about how salvation works. They think that salvation is ultimately having God create some individual perfect good place for them, right? They all want the good place when you die. And God will individually, like you each get your own little heaven and that that's the ultimate plan. And if you're good enough, you get to go there. If you don't, you get punished for eternity. That is not what the Bible teaches What the Bible teaches is that God is creating a community of people who will live with him for all eternity. The end of Revelation, it talks about the new new city we will live in, the eternal city. And it says God will be at the center and his people will live together with him in his presence. That is God's desire, is to create a people who will live forever with him. It's not that we each get our own little salvation project. We become part of his people. The third truth about the the great project of salvation is that God desires salvation for all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. Um, In Revelation 7-9, it talks about the great multitude. It's a picture of the church. And it says there's this ever-growing number of people from every tribe and language and people, and they're wearing white robes, which means they've received the the righteousness of Jesus. They put on Christ in their life, and they're waving palm branches, declaring that they've joined the victory of Christ, that they're they're a part of his people. And they, they declare and they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. That's the picture of the church. And it's happened, right? There are now people in in tribes and languages and tongues 
all throughout the world who are doing what we're doing this morning. They're gathering and praising Jesus, singing about God's salvation in all the different languages. And that, that, that multitude is still growing even now. That's God's desire, that, that, that there will be people from all nations who will end up being a part of his covenant people. The last truth, God is near. Salvation is accessible to all. That's what Paul said to the Athenians. You know, as your own prophets said, God is, God is nearby. You, he, you can find him. But the truth is there aren't many interested in joining his people. People, you know, sure they would say yes if it's a ticket to, to the good place when they die. But that's not what the offer is. The offer is to become part of God's people for eternity. And it's going to be a good place. It's going to be a great place. But it's not just to get that, that ticket to heaven. It's to become part of God's covenant people. So salvation is accessible to all. But not everyone's going to join in. People are going to respond in different ways. When Paul gave his message on Mars Hill, how did they respond? Well, we stopped at verse 31. Let me read verse 32. It says, Now when they, the, the Greek philosophers, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So some made fun of him. <laughs> resurrection of the dead. What do you mean? How, how, that, that, that's impossible. That can't happen. Have you ever felt mocked for your faith in Christ? Have you ever kind of had that snot, oh, okay, you're one of those? Yeah. When you, when you get that, don't get angry. Just smile inside. <laughs> Just smile inside. Rejoice. Because that, that means you're, you have something. Um, some mocked, but others said, we want to hear more about this. We want to hear more. We, we need to understand this. They, God was doing something. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe everything I said is kind of new for you. Could it be in your heart saying, I want to hear more about this. This might be for me. I might be ready to take that step and trust in this, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago who was raised from the dead. What reasons? Just a closing question to think about. What reasons have you heard for people saying they're not interested in the salvation? What reasons have you heard? Think about that and think about the, 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 the great project that God has been about and how we fit into it in our lives. Let me pray. God, I thank you that time after time you've forgiven people, us, humanity, when we have fallen short. And I thank you that you did not give up on your project, but that you carried it through, that you would send your son into our midst, that through him we might have life in his name. Lord, may we celebrate and rejoice for all you've done. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we're going to sing a few less common verses that you may not know um, by heart, but they do kind of echo the themes from the message this morning. <clears throat>